thank you everybody for um, for coming today to the first of our um, resilience Tyndall resilience theme um, conversations. So um, I should introduce myself firstly. Obviously, I'm Johanna Forster. So I um, am one of the co-leads for the Tyndall resilience theme. We have obviously lots of conversations in Tyndall about what resilience means, and I'm sure we all hear it all the time in in the work that we do. But actually, what it means and how we operationalize it, how we actually make it happen, I think there are some like I don't think necessarily we, we know the answers to that and so we wanted to to bring people together across these three main kind of topic areas that obviously will all be heavily impacted by climate change so the first one today is drought and water so Nick thank you so much for being here today um it's absolutely fantastic that you could join us Nick was awarded a PhD in development studies in the department that I'm based in now um, his studies supported a diverse career in water management, the first half of which was spent as a hydrologist and pollution control officer. Um, and then from 2000, he established the agency's um, program of peer-to-peer, -peer, which is oh, that's the environment agency's program of peer-to-peer -peer learning between environmental regulators in Asia, Africa, and the UK. And then his doctoral research into optimal design and delivery of development assistance for global water security and climate resilience led on to lots of work in various different countries with the World Bank, DFID, GIS, WWF, to name a few. Um, since 2010, he has led the work of Water Witness International, a charity he founded to actualize his research findings, and is currently lead author of the Glasgow Declaration for Fair Water Footprints, a new global accountability mechanism to be launched at COP26. So, you know, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> You've been able to squeeze us in. Great, thanks, Joanna. And just to say again, what an honour it is to be invited to speak to speak to you all. And I've, I think COVID has robbed us all of the, the chance for this type of uh, professional uh, interaction uh, over the past couple of years. So it's really important that we keep speaking to each other and learning from each other. And I'm looking forward to, to, to learning from you, you guys today. Um, so resilience, so resilience, I mean, it's, it's one of those words like water security that can be applied to lots of things in lots of different ways. Um, so at, at different scales, um, you know, resilience at household scale, individual scale, country scale, catchment scale, resilience of a business, resilience of a sector. Um, and it's also got, you know, uh, resilience of whom to what, so it's sort of directional of what to whom uh, and they're really important things to to consider and, and like water security i guess it, we can't we've got to be thinking about shared resilience yeah so we can't we've got can't forget that one entity's resilience can come at the expense of other people's resilience so so we really got to think about justice when we use, use these phrases and of course there's lots of different ways to think about resilience uh, and different components of it um whether it's through you know think of social resilience resilience of people and households, communities, you know, it's, it's, if we think of the IPCC definition, which I've drawn on here, that the ability of a system to anticipate, absorb or recover from shocks or hazardous events uh, is, is how the IPCC have, 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 have termed it. You know, there's lots of components to that, you know, the, the access to, to resources, to finance, um, access to, to education, access to security of tenure of resources, um, and uh, livelihoods. So there's a whole range of ways of thinking about resilience and a lot of complexity there. What I'd like to do today, if I can, is to zoom into a practical aspect of resilience that I, I'm familiar with to sort of anchor our discussions there. And what I want to zoom into is the, the, 
the question of what water managers can do to support the resilience of society to droughts, and we can talk about floods, but drought events. Um, because that's quite a, that's an area that we've been looking at um, for the past 10 years through, with Water Witness, but also uh, I have some operational experience of from my days at the Environment Agency. So I'm able to sort of compare and contrast across those, those two spheres of work. Does that sound sensible? So, so that's, that's where I'd like to, 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 to step in to the, opera, the operationalization of resilience from a water management perspective. Yeah, I think that sounds fantastic. Yeah. The other words you used in the in the setup, recovery adaptation, obviously, you know, we could, to my mind, adaptation is the longer term adjustment to, to, to climate change, which is also a big question to dive into from a water management lens. But perhaps given the time we've got, I want to look at this 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 uh, this anticipation, absorption, recovery from from shocks. Okay. Um, so I think that the water resource managers and water service providers have got a really important role to play in resilience and responding to climate change, but also to, to drive social and economic progress more broadly. So, it's, so, so when we've been working with DFID and the World Bank and others on this, um, often the, the sort of catchphrase is, you know, if you want resilience, let's look at making existing institutions function properly right so let you know but there's a key aspect look, let's not start designing new things let's try and make the institutions that, that should be functioning to manage our water function effectively and i think that's a really important starting point because droughts happen anyway right and, and the predictions are it's simply going to get worse and more frequent uh, so so uh, it will serve as well certainly in terms of uncertainty to think about functional water management institutions now how the, how the Environment Agency and before them, the National Rivers Authority planned for droughts and floods is this. And I'm not saying that's what should happen everywhere, but it's a model that we can draw from. So first of all, you'd want to understand your catchment. Yeah? So you'd need some data and you'd need to have some, um, uh, some hydrological analysis to think about return events, right? So you, what level of risk are you, are you working to? Then you'd understand the, the nature of, of demand and use in your catchment and the various water needs um, and their vulnerability to drought or flood events. So whether that's because of where they are, because of the nature of, of the activities that take place. And you, you'd be able to, to arrive at some level of prioritization that's probably dictated at, at, a, at a higher level in policy or law that, that tries to prioritize human health needs or environmental needs over and above commercial uses of water so strategically important uses of water would be prioritized um, and then you start to unpack that and say well what, you know what's what are the risks here what are, you know what what do we need to plan for and how can we mitigate the impact of, of events can we look at interventions like storage uh, and storage reservoirs which would uh, enable an activity to continue uh, in the in the you know based on the return event that you're planning around um, so you would have a basic sort of framework of uh, availability, need, and a sort of risk sliding scale of what, what you want to plan for. Um, and then you get into the business of, of trying to predict and, and plan for what happens if there is a drought. Um, and 
modeling that ahead of time so you've got a bit of warning so my first job when i graduated from environmental sciences at, at, at uea was as a hydrologist for the then nra and my job was to basically look at the levels of all the reservoirs in the northwest of the uk and work out when excuse my language the ship was going to hit the fan in terms of running out of water and then use that use that knowledge to inform decision making about scaling back to protect uh, the, the priority needs of water. So you've got a, you've got a drought, you're monitoring the rainfall and you, you, there's a system of phased alerts so that, you know, okay, we're, we're approaching a drought setting in these catchments. So we need to plan for this response. And this response would be possibly a drought order, negotiations with the water companies, with farmers to scale back to protect um, priority uses using statutory measures and enforcement where necessary. Uh, and, and, you know, drought orders are a statutory measure to, to basically adjust people's abstraction licenses for a temporary period to protect the priority uses. Um, so that's, that's a basic model of how, an arguably effective model of how the UK uh, and, and water resource managers here have, have managed drought shocks yeah, and protected society's priorities within our, our normal or increasing levels of variability. Um, I'll stop there and catch breath in case there's any questions on that or, or any challenge before I go on to uh, looking at how it plays out in other parts of the world. You might be coming on to this, Nick, but um, a lot of that seems to be predicated on the, the access to data and measurements to understand your, your system properly before you then go into all of the, the kind of dominoes that fall after that. Um, how, in the UK, obviously, there are river gauges and you know, weather stations, et cetera, to give us the not always great data, but, you know, some data that we can start to use to make these decisions that you, you outlined there in that nice summary. But how, how what's the situation like elsewhere in the world in terms of data provision and measurements that we need to make these decisions in an informed way? Um, that's a really good question. It's, 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 it's highly variable, as you, as you know, and, and, you know, one of the challenges is to ensure that that lack of uh, time series data doesn't hold back progress right so we can't wait for the 120 years time series data that we enjoy in much of the uk um but there are there are things you can do about that you know bruce and i wrote a paper many years ago about expedient water resource management which uh, we could we'll come on to but which basically um uh tries to support decision making on the on the data you have got available um I guess that leads me on to the to the requirement for functional water management institutions, and I guess this is the, the the big conclusion. If you if you want to be resilient to these climate shocks and droughts, you need to be investing in water resource management. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, for data, for the decision making uh, frameworks to allow you to to be resilient in terms of water, um, and that's a problem because a lot of countries aren't investing in the strategic levers to enable resilience so lots of our work is looking at um really trying to get a sophisticated diagnosis of what river basin organizations need to function properly in places like sub-saharan africa um, and what we find is that based on some really some quite nice analysis we've done river basin organizations are, are receiving about 10 percent of the funding that they need to function properly um, and 
The question is, well, where does the money come from to enable them to function more effectively? We can't rely on donor aid. Uh, it's simply not doable. Granting aid is going to be difficult. So, you know, valuing water and having water users paying for the service of, you know, Brazilian support is a really important element of that. And there's some recent changes in Tanzania to the, the water pricing regime for bulk water users, which is a really exciting step towards funding an operational basin management. Uh, operational basin management so that it can support resilience and decision making and investment in in, in data collection so you know we we can't hold we can't wait for data to to take action in 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 a lot of places there is data available a reasonable amount of data to make really important decisions certainly you'll know where your strategic priorities are in a basin and you should know where you should be measuring flows and rainfall and abstractions uh, so taking a sort of expedient risk-based approach as a society, you should you should have a reasonable idea of where your sensitivities are, and where where you need to invest to enable decision making. Um, you know, there's there's things that we can these these days around modelling of that to 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 span gaps in data availability, um, and of course the the type of uh, work that's available through through climate modelling is helping there as well. So, you know, data is important, but it's not the be all and end all. I think more important is a is a is is the a politically enabled river basin organization that has the resources and authority to act in the public interest on these types of issues now we've done lots of work well there's lots of work ongoing around how you get there but key issues are issues of financial you know financial resourcing accountability to the the water users and populations that that authority is supposed to serve uh, and the leadership to enable water management to be prioritised on a level with transport investment, hospitals, defence, right? So that as a set of things the state needs to do and support, water management and resilience to droughts and floods is really is up there, right? And, and a lot of the work of our partners is trying to make sure that water management gets the political profile it deserves, because it doesn't, right? It's, it's, it's not a, you know, drought management is, well, that's probably the wrong way. Good aquifer management is rarely a vote winner, right? If you get it wrong, it'll take many years for it for it to come and pop up on a in a, in a certainly a voter's mind. So, so it competes uh, and and loses out often to other more visible issues out there in the world. One of the problems with um, data is not only the supply side; it's the demand side. And of course, what can happen? And this happened in the drought in Cape Town, and also has happened in in southern Tanzania, where Nick and I have been is that you get one sector blaming the other sector for, for using too much water. So in Cape Town, you had uh, Cape Town urban dwellers blaming uh, fruit growers and uh, wine growers for using too much water, or you had poor communities blaming rich people who have swimming pools for too much water, uh, taking too much water. And then of course, in Southern Tanzania, you have everybody blaming irrigation and so on and so forth. So the real problem with data is, is being able to solve those intersector blame games that you get going during a drought. Um, uh, as Nick, Nick was saying, uh, in, in many of the areas where we're working, the, the basin authorities are very weak. The central government governance systems are extremely weak. And in, in rural areas, um, particularly 
around the Sahel, but also other areas of sub-Saharan Africa, that the reach of government is very, very weak, but there still needs to be some data available um, and some collection of that. Uh, so working with the sort of customary governance systems uh, that are in place, uh, a lot can be done there, a huge amount can be done. Um, and uh, essentially the way that we work is a two-pronged approach to that, to try and strengthen the central governance institutions, the basin authorities when it comes to data collection, but also at the very local level, the community level, that many, many things can be done to collect information about groundwater availability and rainfall on an ongoing basis and feed that into local level planning um, and, you know, essentially planning what contingency measures can be put in place uh, for when drought comes and what early warning can be there for when drought comes. And that that seamlessly can link with local governance planning processes, um, provided that there's full participation of local government in that and full participation of, of um, local leadership in that. Um, it's it's just the, the issue is it always comes up against this financing barrier when you come to what do you do um, when it's beyond um, the uh, capacity of, of local government and community to, to act on the data, um, that huge financing gap there. And that's that's uh, where sort of higher level political influencing has to come in. But um, yeah, for the last sort of 10, 12 years, we've done a lot to strengthen that local level data collection in, in many of the areas where we work. Um, so yeah, a huge amount can be done there. Great stuff, Vinny. If, if you can just respond to those two points quickly. I mean, that Vinny, I, I don't want to, by focusing on water resource management, you know that's my area of expertise. I don't want to undermine that thinking about resilience from a, a municipal water provider perspective, because you'd need something similar there where you, you're planning for a shortage and you, like you say, you're putting contingencies in place to protect the priority uses within your network or to scale back and ration so that everybody gets a fair share during a drought period. I just want to come back to Bruce's point and, and what I didn't perhaps emphasize um, you know, in terms of the justice of this and making sure that, you know, if there is shortage and you're scaling back water, water use to, to manage a drought um, to protect priority uses. This is when water tenure becomes really important, right? Because you need to know who's using what water for what purposes. And in lots of parts of the world, you, you don't have the same kind of water abstraction permitting coverage that you would have in the UK. At the same time, there have been attempts over the past 30 years through integrated water resource management to put in place systems of water rights allocation so that if you're a water user and you're taking water out of the ground or a river, you've got a permit that gives you, tells you when you should do that, but it also gives you a, a statutory right of access that needs to be considered during times of drought restrictions. And that's a really important mechanism for, for, for trading off and, and ensuring there's justice in who gets what water during, during drought times. Now, there's a brilliant bit of work that you need to know about, and I'm sure you are, um, Stephen Hodgson and the team at FAO and, and uh, others at the Emirate Law Institute on water tenure and how different conceptions of water tenure, which sort of usefully bust out from the, the customary water rights and formal water rights arguments. And they the talk about the need for a, a diverse set of water tenure mechanisms that, that are useful and applicable in different contexts. And I think there's a great deal of, of academic and practical work to be done over the coming, the coming years to, to to develop the idea of security of water tenure and all that that says about justice and, and, and resilience. But I, I would point you to, to Stephen Hodgson's great work on that.
but it is, a, is you know water tenure is going to be really important in terms of resilience you know people's uh, legal claims or, or, or semi-legal claims to water access suddenly gets really important when you're talking about drought restrictions and if you think of you know pastoralists for example are, are typically looked over in terms of issuing of water rights there are very few systems out there that allow for a pastoralist water water right uh, which basically locks locks pastoralists into conflicts during times of drought so there's lots to talk about on that um i just wanted to ask more of a general question about the the word resilience and is this um does this have sort of different standards from place to place are there some countries that um would say you know resilience is when you're able to carry on business as usual so you know even water fountains are still running or things like that really kind of excessive or are there um, differences where resilience means still being able to have drinkable water you know how, does that change from place to place and how does that um how does that play into um yeah resilient strategies it's a really brilliant question um it needs to be defined right and it's it's often not and that 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 is a failure because it undermines any accountability for resilience so it's just it's a word that can be banded about uh you know we need resilience it's, it be almost becomes a bit meaningless and can be used as a as, as to you know by power, the powerful elites that benefit from the status quo to to securitize that status quo so we you know my resilience is that i get water and it's important for the economy never mind you downstream users our national resilience depends on me getting the water I need to run my business or, or, or produce XYZ. Um, so there's there's lots of, you know, it can be politicized and used for, by different interests. I think it would be really important to, to define at various levels what is actually meant by resilience and what the plan is for ensuring that and having that set out so that it's transparent and that people can be held to account, like I say, held to account for delivery against it. And it's often not. I, I don't think I've seen that written be, beyond the machinations of a sort of drought plan, a participatory drought plan. You know, I've seen, I haven't really seen explicit definitions of resilience from, in a water management sphere. Uh, based on so, sort of the definitions of resilience and those, uh, those conversations, I was thinking more about um, how different countries or, or people you have come across in institutions that you were based in management organizations how do they sort of think about resilience on the short term and the long term and how do they balance those priorities because they do well can differ uh, some countries and some organizations might be looking at more sort of sort of the short term sort of in in some ways lurching from disaster to, to another uh, kind of resilience and trying to sort of manage those uh, circumstances or sort of, and some might be thinking more on the long term how do you well, you need both of them how do you balance those and and how do countries try and do that? That's a really brilliant question. Um, the, I think it's probably packaging the sort of resilience pot and the adaptation pot. So generally, sorry, it will be for river basin managers and local authorities and city authorities to plan for disaster events, right? So hazards, droughts and floods. Um, for longer term resilience to climate variability i think that falls in more in the sort of you know the the adaptation sphere some initiative environment so it's it, it tends to, from what i've seen certainly in countries we work it tends to be separated out a little bit so planning for long-term changes in water availability will have input from the the, the basin authorities but will be led by different parts of government ministry of agriculture for example so there's a there's a potentially on you you know there's a separation there in how it's being administered to be honest a lot of the basin managers that we know 
don't really have time to think about resilience. They've got to worry about the fuel they need to put in their car to get to the whatever, you know, the next meeting they need they demanded to go to by a politician. So there's a real disconnect between the, the long, short and long-term needs of basins and basin populations and what basin managers are actually doing because they're so under-resourced, right? They're just not, they don't have the, um, the resource or political support that is needed to do their difficult job. And, th and that's a lot about what Water Witness does and tries to expose that and, and constructively and provide routes towards changing that um, to enable basin managers to play for their, their really important roles in, in the resilience of society. So um, it's really fantastic, Lasagna. Am I saying your name correctly? Yes. Wonderful. Is here to join us as well. And we're so fortunate to have you here. Um, you're an associate professor in the Department of Civil Engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology in, in New Delhi, India. So very different sort of, ex uh, of expertise to, to one that we actually have currently in this group now, which is why it's so great that you, you're able to join us. Your research interests include hydroclimatology, hydrologic extremes, as well as water resources management and modeling. Um, a decade and a half long research attempt to generate fundamental scientific understanding of the hydrological extremes, along with improvising the hydrological modeling to provide early warning methods and adaptation policies for sustainable water resources management. Um, she leads or co-leads the Water Security and Sustainable Development Hub in India, a GCRF project led by Newcastle University, as well as being the editor of various different uh, journals, including the Journal of Earth System Dynamics. Um, so it would be really great if we could hear from you, Dania, uh, with sort of your perspectives on the, on those kind of questions that we, we set out. Yeah, thank you, Joanna. So um, yeah, I am a faculty member in the Department of Civil Engineering in uh, Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi. So my research group uh, in IIT Delhi, uh, Hydroclimatological Extremes Research Group, we are primarily uh, interested in unveiling different aspects of hydroclimatology, which is a multidisciplinary field, uh, integrating hydrology and uh, climate science. So we often rely on an integrated approach uh, involving data analysis, modeling, and also theoretical analysis to understand the different facets of hydrological cycle, especially the dynamics of hydrological extremes, uh, floods and droughts. So as India is a country, the economy of which is majorly uh, driven by agriculture, the understanding early warning and even the provision of adaptation measures are extremely important in this context. So while these two extremes uh, that are uh, of course natural disasters, the occurrence of which and um, therefore the impact, its impact on the system are more or less unavoidable, uh, different plausible options to resist, uh, recover or adapt to these disasters need to be explored uh, at a very finer level. And also with climate change and the resultant increased frequency of these extremes, the feasibility of different possible adaptation options that need to be assessed by evaluating its applicability by conducting many uh, so-called stress tests before even its operationalization. Now, with our experience in dealing with hydrological extremes, we also explored the adequacy of uh, stormwater drainage infrastructure of the capital city of India, Delhi, uh, for a much wider region where it is called as National Capital Territory, NCT of Delhi. And this exercise we took way beyond in uh, 2013, an exercise uh, which we could complete uh, finally uh, by 2018 or 19, but not so satisfactorily quite enough. Uh, so, but that still needs a lot to be done. So our focus was to redesign a resilient system uh, that can counter any shock due to urban floods. 
So we further extended uh, this effort uh, to investigate the water security and even the sustainable development of NCT Delhi. This is done through uh, two major projects, one which mentioned by Joanna, one funded by GCR of UKRI and led by Newcastle University UK, where the water security of even five countries are assessed, uh, UK, India, Malaysia, Ethiopia, and Colombia. The water security hub of India is, is located in IIT Delhi, where we focus on deriving solutions and also frameworks to ensure the water security of NCT. And this activity is also supported by another project of national importance, funded by the principal scientific advisor of uh, Prime Minister's office in the form of Delhi Science and Technology Cluster. So both these exercises, um, what we are emphasizing here is that we implement the technologies to address the pertinent problems faced by the city, in our case, issues faced by the city's water sector. Now, when we started this exercise almost two and a half years back, the first step we undertook was to have a discussion with all the stakeholders, government agencies, NGOs, uh, and all others, to come up with an agreeable definition of water security itself. What do, what do they understand or how they define water security? So the definition of water security uh, even varies geographically. For example, uh, when we take arid regions, uh, it just means adequate water availability. And for other regions, it might mean equitable distribution of water. So there are numerous definitions and hence involving uh, various terms like quantity, quality, health, uh, economic growth, access, uh, eco ecosystems, and even uh, terms like risk and resilience, global change, national security, even also can be found in, the, in this definition of water security. So the definition of water security, if you want to, op before operationalizing, if you want to have a proper understanding of it, does encompass all these terms. So uh, this risk and resilience, or even the terms like resistance, um, recovery, and adaptation are probably subsets of this water security. So uh, we went on with the uh, most widely accepted uh, definition, that is the availability of Accept, uh, acceptable quantity and also quality of water for health, livelihoods, ecosystems, and production, uh, coupled with an acceptable level of uh, water-related risk uh, to people, environment, and economies. So uh, often, uh, when we define water security, we account only people, and uh, uh, the environment is often neglected. So here, we, uh, we thought of considering environment also as a stakeholder. So this uh, definition finally uh, is embedding a sort of sustainable development. Now, as I mentioned before, that our objective is to address the water security of NCT Delhi here, which is an issue with multiple layers of complexities. Firstly, Delhi is an ever-growing city with many socio-ecological political factors influencing the outcome. The growth of city is actually not limited with respect to any resource availability, not even water. Delhi receives water from majorly four sources, around 40% from Yamuna, the basin on which Delhi is lying and can be called as a feeder basin of Delhi. But then the water received from Yamuna is only 40% and we receive around 25%, 30% from the Ganges or Ganga and rest from other basins and even from groundwater. So uh, though NCT was our region of interest, the approach to this problem, we adopted a very four scaled approach the four scales considers here are the basin scale. Why we took the basin scale is that even though our focus is on the uh, city, uh, is to get a holistic understanding about the system, availability of water, along with a proper understanding of the different uh, stresses which act on the system. Then the NCT scale. The second scale we considered was the NCT scale, where mostly the administrative decisions were made are made by the authorities, by the operators with respect to water release. 
and the third scale is a subbasin is a subbasin of nct is a small basin where the resistance resilience of the system and the adaptation options can be explored in a detailed manner now what is the need of a fourth scale then we also selected a fourth finer scale that is our own campus iit delhi campus uh, where we have on and where we can evaluate and implement some of these uh, options or actions action plans before implementing it into a larger scale so this this was the four scale approach we have framed upon and still working on now to implement uh, these approach we must have a definite understanding of the response of the system to various stresses and what are the major stresses one should consider when we consider the water sector the major stresses as far as the system we are considering the major stress comes from probably pollution the stretch of the river passing through the city that is that is yamuna stretch that is the most polluted stretch around the world so the pollution probably is the most uh, pertinent stress in in the system we are dealing with then comes the water sharing there is interbasin interstate water sharing which are dealt by through some treaties which are not often followed and then there is ever increasing population and putting stress on the system then there are socio economic changes above all these uh, change uh, all these stresses there is a stress for climate change also so all these stresses and so if you want to derive an action plan to deal with stresses combinedly has it has never been attempted except for individual action plans like pollution action plan or climate change state action plans have been implemented but all these stresses together an action plan will it be ever possible so often the operators tend to adopt to the ad adapt to the situation one come across and revert back to the normal when the situation gets normal that is a normal procedure we adopt now around the world our usual response action to any water scar situation is to reduce the uh, per capita water use reduction commonly adopted by many developed nations now this is how we often resist the water scarcity with a hope that system will bounce back to the normal soon and we have also seen that the tolerance of the people once they are informed or educated about this disaster situation or unprecedented situation that tolerance is also usually high to tackle such situation now despite these practices which we have been adopting historically these decades of depletion or the aging water system growing population rising temperature uh, more frequent and intense precipitation and drought events expected from climate change all these stresses will likely compound the pressure on water resources daniel yes. sorry to interrupt you because it's absolutely fascinating and you're cross cutting loads of different things that we've been talking about particularly about actually how you pull together all this data how the, the 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 just what resilience means as a whole in terms of operationalizing it but i'm really mindful of the fact we've got 10 minutes left and um and there's a few questions and i would would you mind wrapping up if you would just and then we can go to the questions because i i can't quite so I'm coming to that. rushed by yeah. yeah i have tried to uh put my views on those questions so i'm coming to that Well, so how an action plan which i have described can combine all these possible stresses that is how we are going to operationalize this and then how to prioritize that so one possible way is to assess the vulnerability of the system to, to these different stresses and take the ones that are most crucial so the basic problem highlighting highlight here the concepts of resistance recovery and adaptation of a region's water security to a drought situation so definition of these terms though these are there are multitude of these definition with respect to water security if we want to highlight we can pick that from the literature so for example the ability of the water resource systems to withstand the impact of any disaster 
be it drought or any other natural extreme events, and continue to effectively supply for the functioning of the hydrological system. That is how we normally define resistance. And the quantum of time we need to get back to the system, to the original state, that the pre-disaster state, that is what is called recovery. And adaptation is the ability of the system or even the humans or institutions to adjust to the potential risk to take advantage of opportunities and to respond to consequences. So these are the ways we have defined, or at least IPCC have defined these three terms. So there is a proper definition, but when it takes into different sectors, of course, these definitions will vary. For example, when we, if you are taking three sectors like water, food, and energy, which are closely linked, when it comes to resistance, when from the water security angle, we talk about resistance from drought, we could talk about from resistance from flood and, for example, climate change. In agriculture, again, resistance could be from uh, drought or climate change and even from some pesticides attack and all those things. Energy, uh, the, the resistance should be from the low flows and, of course, from climate change. The way in which recovery is defined, I have found that more or less it carries the same meaning all across the sectors. But then adaptation also, the definition itself varies from sector to sector. Now, moving ahead, so that, that we can expand to other sectors also. So though I have cited only these three sectors, now we can imagine that water is a sector which is linked with almost any other sector, be it industrial health or anything. So in one way or other, the factors involved in other sectors automatically will get in, included when it comes to water sector. So ideally, when we talk about resistance, uh, if it is strong enough to make our water sector immune to the risk, that should be very much enough. If the extreme event occurs, even after resistance, enough recovery time can be provided. And during and the post-recovery time, adaptation strategies can be implemented to bring back to the system from impacted state to healthy functioning state. So this is, this is somehow, before going into resilience even, if you want to operationalize resistance, recovery, and adaptation, we are already doing that in the form of hard infrastructures and soft infrastructures. Hard infrastructure means construction of dams, barrages, reservoir, and soft infrastructure means community engagement and widespread information education. That is how we mostly uh, do the resistance, operationalize resistance from these kind of disasters. And thank you very much, uh, Nick, because I'm just following up on what Nick um, talked about. Uh, and mine is to bring just about the, the, the pastoral context, the, the context in the, in the, in the drylands of, of, of one of Africa with respect to, you know, uh, resilience. And, and what I'm trying to say is that, I mean, for pastoral systems, uh, maybe the recovery components make more sense uh, than talking about long-term adaptation because um, these systems are managed for, managed for flexibility rather than stability. And so, for them, what makes more sense is, is whether um, uh, what they are used to works properly, as Nick puts it, uh, uh, that, that, than trying to, 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 to come up with something uh, new so as to stabilize, so, so to speak. And, and, and so with respect to water uh, resources in the dryland, for example, what they would want to see is that is there proper governance um, uh, to ensure that they access this water when they need it. And, and for some areas, they may not need the water uh, throughout the year because um, uh, there are certain areas where they graze the animals and they only require water in those areas uh, during um, dry season. So for example, if, if it is a borehole, then what they do is that when they don't need it, they close down the borehole. 
So, so it's more of the, the governance aspect of it and trying to manage and ensure that what they're used to doing works properly other than you know, trying to stabilize the entire system. Thank you. I think that's really reassuring to hear. I mean, it, it, we, we, see, we see things in a similar way. I mean, the, the best route to resilience is, is, is good resource governance, which serves, serves the needs of justice and, and equitable resource allocation. Um, and, and a big part of that is ensuring that our institutions are accountable to the people that, that they're supposed to serve. Um, and there are, it's probably worth mentioning, we're, we're working with um, some of you and, and IDS on a, a major global research program called Accountability for Water just now to try and fill some of the knowledge gaps about how to make water institutions more accountable uh, to, to citizens. I think that's a really, really good point, actually. And it ties in quite nicely with what Roger said in terms of like best, the best route to resilience is actually strengthening institutions and resource management that's already in place. It ties in with a lot of the work that um, myself and Judy and Joe have done for WaterAid as well um, in this recent piece of work that we did with, with Vinnie. Yeah, but what I, but I, I think, I posit that actually the drought risk, particularly in dry land areas, you know, it's, it is... If you're not talking about emergency management, but you're talking about managing and reducing the risk, whether it's present day or future risk, um, it is very similar to the sorts of actions you would take to manage everyday chronic water scarcity. So I think compared to other hazards, particularly more violent short onset hazards, rapid onset hazards, I think there is, this is one of the questions in the um, original briefing, I think there is a distinction. I mean, I think we're all kind of conscious that drought is a, it's a different type of hazard than many of the others because it's a slow onset, because um, the actually the worst effects of the drought often appear, the worst physical effects, you know, much later in its, during its onset. But essentially, um, in water stressed areas, and I, you know, I, I, I think this, if we use the term resilience, it is, it is very close to, to, to basically managing water scarcity I don't know, if, you know. There's, I'm sure there are exceptions, but no, I think that's you know, my sense. Right. I think that's right, and you know, we can we can waste a lot of time trying to define words, but it is about you know making sure that water is well governed and equitably distributed, and um, yeah, as I said, serves serves the needs of the populations that it's intended to, uh, rather than elites. So, I don't want to take the time we've got left, but I'd love to tell you about this uh, this global declaration that that speak that speaks to that need. We've, as Bruce will know, we you know, Water Witness has moved into a new phase of operation to try and get water on the in the media and the public agenda in in, in policy debates in the global north because we think we know what some of the, the responses needed are. So we've got a campaign, we, we had a campaign called Fair Water Footprints, which was about helping people, basically building on the genius of Tony Allen and Arjen Hookstra on water footprinting, which allow us to connect the water needed to make a mobile phone or to produce the shirt or the, the, the food we're about to eat for lunch, you know, connecting the, the, um, the consumers of those things to the water impacts in the catchments, often distant catchments of production, and to ask questions about who's winning and who's losing from, from water use in our global uh, our globalized economy. And we've 
see that there's a, that connectivity provided by Tony's work and Arjun's work provides us with a new opportunity and obligation uh, to ensure that the water used strengthens resilience, strengthens good water governance rather than it undermines uh, and makes people more vulnerable. So we initiated a campaign. What was unusual is that the UK government um, and, you know, say all you like about his politics, but Zach Goldsmith got hold of this idea as minister for, for DEFRA and, and uh, one of the FCDO ministers. And basically, as, as, as tied his uh, flag to the mast of this at COP26 and, and wants to launch a global declaration that commits governments, business, banks um, and uh, NGOs to delivering fair water footprints by 2030. Now, what this means in effect is that in these supply chains, by 2030, in our globalized supply chains, no pollution, so no adverse impacts. So as Dana said, no, you know, supporting resilience by not polluting the water that people rely on in the first place, zero water pollution, equitable and sustainable water withdrawals, full access to wash for everybody in the supply chain and communities influenced, uh, protection of nature and regenerative agriculture and planning for drought and flood events. So imagine, we're really excited because all of a sudden this provides the beginnings of a global accountability mechanism which holds the powerful actors in multinational companies and the global financial system to account for responsible and equitable water governance which is a direct link join the dots to resilience right in some of the most vulnerable parts of the world where our commodities are produced mined manufactured grown um, so it's hugely exciting. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of nervous breakdown time. We've got we've had 100 people arguing over what should go in this declaration um, in in a month. Right. So we've got a final version that the, the the Dutch government, the Finnish government, the Peruvian government, the Madagascan government, Malawi. And a bunch of companies and banks are, are ready to sign up to. And, and what we really need is some of the intellectual muscle represented on this call to help us. So help us work out how it's going to play out, right? We, we think this is a breakthrough opportunity for, for better water governance over the next decade. And it'd be great to get your your uh, your support for it and uh, challenge to it, right? Because it's it's not without risk in that it, there's a risk that it could lead to the securitization of water for, for the powerful, those with the loudest voice, right? Sounds like, that sounds incredible. And how would people be able to feed into that process, Nick? Um, we've tried to make it as participatory as possible. So there was a big Chatham House event that was publicised uh, a couple of weeks ago to, to get a participatory process to draft the, the document. Uh, that's passed now, but I can share, certainly share the current draft. Um, and there'll be, a, be a, a major event on the 8th of November at COP uh, where the signatories will, will declare why it's important and what they're going to do to deliver it. So thrilled that Wartrader have agreed to be a signatory of any really important show of strength there and support um but yeah like i say it's it's hopefully a breakthrough moment for accountability for water do either of our invited speakers have anything else they want to kind of finish with wrap up with any final final thoughts or take take home messages thank you joanna to you and the team and and ali for organizing this it's vital that we you know, despite the challenges of covid we continue to connect as a community of practice and learning so thanks for the invitation and um, please invite us again. We'd, we'd love to participate in this kind of discussion. Um, thank you again, everybody, for your time today.